Hey humans, welcome back to another episode of the Being Human podcast. Today's is a good one and a long one. Today I have two wonderful guests who were two of some of my biggest professional mentors and influences, actually. So it was very exciting for me. Um, once again, there's a lot of laughter through talking about a lot of really deep and hard stuff. Um, but uh, I think it's a lot of really great conversation about the human experience, about boundaries, um, and a lot about social work because we are all social workers. So buckle up and get ready. I hope you can stay till the end because there's some real funny uh, shitting on Freud and Elon Musk that I think everyone will enjoy. All right, have a good one. All right, here we go. Hey humans, welcome back to the Being Human podcast. So excited for today's episode because I have not just one, but two amazing guests with me who are two women who absolutely shaped my life, both personally and professionally. Um, but I will go ahead and let them introduce themselves to you. Kara, <laughs> looks like you're up first. Hi, I'm Kara Cavill and... Um... I am a social worker, definitely identify as a social worker, and been um, in social work education for about 12 years. Um, I'm also a clinician, and I am a white, cisgendered, able-bodied, heterosexual woman. Click, click, check, check. That's about all I've got. But I'm very <coughs> much excited to be here because it feels like home. Awesome. <laughs> Barb, you're up. I'm Barb Harris, and I was a press professor at so in social work at Creighton for 30 years, 25 in the um, social work program, and then five years in the School of Dentistry. And um, if you would have told me I'd be sitting here with the two of you, I would have said, no freaking way. And it just happened like that. You know, it's just, it's how we click. There's, yeah. You know what I mean? You saw it. We, you took me out to dinner, we, we ran into you, this happened. So, I mean, I just cannot believe how lucky I am to be here today with you two. Well, so Barb taught Jenna and I at Creighton in our undergrad programs. Yes. And Barb was actually the person that convinced me to not major in sociology, but to major in social work. Yes! <laughs> so smart. One of my finer days. I know. <laughs> it was great. And then, yeah, then we just continued to work. I guess I, we've been to a couple conferences together. We click. And we click. And it's there's great. just no reason why to have a thing. I don't yeah. know what it is. Yeah, but Barb definitely influenced absolutely where I am today. Well, and the topic for today that we're going to talk about was inspired by you. So oh, we'll right. talk about it yeah. later, but I know I have a bigger yeah. question. Yeah. <laughs> okay, before I make you answer the big, big question about what is the human experience, I'm going to just share a little bit about, yes, how I know the two oh, of yeah. you. So as Kara said, Barb was the head of the social work program at Creighton when I was there. And so I was a little baby, like freshman, and I met this woman and she was just like big and powerful and passionate. And I just like really wanted to emulate all of the things that I saw in you. And that's what you were just so encouraging to me. 
uh, all four years that I was there. I never remember a moment where I didn't feel like empowered or emboldened to just like keep pursuing, keep doing, you know, like you really validated that I had instincts that I could follow. And I hadn't had a lot of adults in my life up until that point validate that. If anything, they were trying to deter me in the other way. So I think that's part of why I clung on to you so hard too, because it was just like the first adult human who I felt like saw me really for the potential that I knew I had. And you just like really fostered that. So thank Aww. you. Um, and then Kara was my first supervisor with my master's as a therapist. And that was so important because, one, I literally didn't know what I was doing. I was like, oh, my God, I, like, think I know how to do therapy and, like, I want to do that. But, like, also I don't know what I'm doing. And you were just so kind and so patient. And, I'm like, so the smart. so that's what I mean. The things you taught me about, like, different theory I had not learned yet or how to apply that theory in session was phenomenal better than most things I had gotten in my grad program at that point where I was like oh this makes sense yeah um and you really helped me um just like learn that like like to keep moving forward right yeah. and getting out of a place that wasn't super healthy yeah, yeah not a great fit yeah. good way to put it yeah. so thank you ladies <laughs> for changing my life and now I'll change yours by making <laughs> you talk about <laughs> <laughs> all of the things on recording and then putting it out into the universe for people to listen to. That's a lot. Yeah. So let's start with that really amazing question. What is the human experience, gals? How would you define that for yourself, vaguely or otherwise? It's so hard to answer that question because we were just talking a minute ago yeah. about as a country, are we this sort of self-absorbed Is because you don't hear people in Rwanda talking about their trauma and so when you think of the human experience it's it's easy for me I live in Dundee and I can see my nearly see my house from here to not get wrapped up in this as yeah. a human experience and think about think what unites us I mean what is what are some of the global things you know we all experience loss um we all experience joy, you know, we all experience fear. I'm not trying to simplify this, but I don't want to make it more complicated than it has to be either. So but I, I think that it is, right? I think the simplicity is in that the one thing that we definitely all need, regardless of, like, geography or culture, is connection to other human beings. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. To share those joys, those fears, those Yeah. Sentences. And it, I feel like sometimes in the United States we just, wrap the human experience around us and you know we're not mm -hmm. not as open I, I, it's hard to explain I mean it's really a tough time right now and so um, yeah I mean it's I wish I had something more articulate to say but I know Karen does so. <laughs> <laughs> but just, you know the more we make it complicated the less connected we are because yeah. when we set up these categories and so that's what I've got. Yeah. Is that your answer? <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> All right, cool. Then moving, on. moving on. I mean, I think part of it is, it, I think it actually is complicated, and it should be. It's appropriately complicated to be a human. And um, I think we, uh, I think actually when we find ourselves getting in trouble is when we oversimplify the experience of being a human. Well, you should feel this way. 
and you should feel this way. And I think that what I try to hold true for myself and for the people I have the opportunity to teach and work with is, uh, you know, it's, it's all okay <laughs> to feel exactly how you feel and to um, explore all the parts of yourselves, even the parts that you're unfamiliar with. That might scare you a little bit. I always like the term Vessel van der Kolk, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score and a lot of other things, but uh, talks about like what does it mean to be alive, um, which is kind of the antidote to um, treating people who have experienced um, adversity or harsh realities or trauma or whatever word you want to use, is what does that mean? And it's, I think, knowing what you know and feeling what you feel. And that changes every single day. I always say to my students, like, I'm not the same person I was yesterday. And you should, you know, you should be okay with that. Like, you don't yeah. have to be the same person you were yesterday, depending on who you encounter and what you read and what you listen to and what you watch and how your body moves and all that stuff can, can be transformative um, in a simple way, but in a, in a valuable way too. But I don't think simplicity necessarily means you're not paying attention. Yeah. I feel like, you know, what you said about all those words, I think, are kind of simple. I mean, it's hard to get there, but I think there's beauty in the simplicity of what you just mm -hmm. said. You know, this is really a normal human experience. I mean, yeah. that's, that's pretty simple language. It takes a lot of hard work to get there, but, mm -hmm. you know. Well, and to that point, I think what I'm recently navigating is well but like we create a society that isn't normal human experience right like um capitalism i'm really big on right now capitalism is inhumane it is an inhumane structure that we have placed on ourselves so i think that's where the complexity comes is like we are these creatures that it should be a little bit simpler we should be able to wake up on this planet connect with one another, find joy, find peace, whatever. But we did this thing where we created this really complex society all the way around us that has like these layers of inhumanity baked into it. Mm -hmm. And so it makes it, to me, that's what makes it feel more complicated. Is how do I navigate that without losing my humanity in the process? But think of all the other societies, if we go kind of step out to a more global perspective, there's a lot of countries that way worse than we are, you know, in terms of um, the horrors that they beget on one another. And so there's no way I'd ever stick up for capitalism, but I do think that's where I feel like we get kind of selfish. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we're selfish just by nature, as you said, of our culture, but it, it's easy to see that we're, you know, the sun and the moon and the stars of the global experience. Yeah. And I think of, you know, the people who've just had horrific lives. And, you know, and it's all it's always kind of amazing to me. I taught um, a counseling and Christian spirituality course for 10 years at Creighton. People come from all over the world. And it was so interesting when we were talking about trauma one day and one of the priests, and they had an opportunity if they wanted to speak about trauma. And one of the fathers said, you know, 
my trauma is I wait every night to see if the kids are going to be kidnapped and murdered. And I thought, now we're talking. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And yeah. everybody was just kind of caught off guard. But remember, do you know what I mean? It's, and it's, we're off in a trauma conversation, but it's, it's when we don't take that word seriously enough. I, mm -hmm. it's, it's really hard for me to watch people use it. Trivialized it's been sure. trivialized yeah. and it makes me sad when I think, yeah, but somebody who's, well, all, tra all trauma is trauma or what is something like all, mm. um, I can't remember. I feel like I know where you're going, but it's yeah. not clear. And, yeah. And you go, mm, let's say trauma for something that really is, I mean, it's just become part of the vernacular as you know, I've, I have trauma, you know, but not really. I don't, and I'm not minimizing that, but it's like, can we think well, of another think, word for that? Yeah. Well, that do, yeah, we need word. something that describes, because that's what I mean. I do think that it, and the only word I have is trauma, but like, I do think it's very difficult um, to just like wake up in this society, right? Like that in and of itself is very, very hard and it takes a lot of things and information and knowledge and, and an ability and skill to navigate it in a way where you can maintain like your own health and well-being and like right um and so I don't know that the word trauma is appropriate but it would have been a word I was using to like describe the difficulty but I think it's hard too because it's people's perception mm -hmm. so something that I don't perceive as that scary or whatever someone else might really perceive that to be so horrific and so that's what's so hard about trauma too is like well, one word to describe such, to yeah, that. an individual yeah. experience of things that are so buried and different. Well, we had a student this one thread. A student came in. I gave her a B. <laughs> and she came into my office. She says, "I'm so traumatized by that." And I go, "Hold the phone here." <laughs> yep. You yeah. learned what that word means. Yeah. And Why you're going to you tell me it? that this is a traumatic experience. And as a social worker, you know better. Mm. Yeah. I've said that too a yeah. hundred times. Like, no research doesn't trauma bond you. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> kind of, you know what I mean? So we're kind of on the same. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's an overused concept, but I also think that you're right. It's nuanced, and what might be perceived as threatening to me may not be perceived as threatening to you. But I think threatening is a better descriptor. Mm -hmm. I, I really like that word in terms of describing suffering. Yeah. Then but it inherently disorganizes the individual organism yeah. like the human organism like it's a disorganizing experience um neurobiologically neurophysiologically um it's disorganizing uh so you know that's what i try to help students remember like are you uncomfortable because that's different than being dropped exactly <laughs> yeah so like just sit just with it language. and i'm not gonna make i'm not gonna answer that question for the person they yeah. can come up with that themselves but i do like to introduce that moment of reflection when people are using that word and to speak on capitalism all of us unfortunately participate in that mm -hmm. system that is harmful to uh people who don't have similar access to we do based on our identities and so i think we also have to be like we can be we're implicated in the experience of um, capitalism even in like working in an academic institution Woo! i mean Lots of issues there, and also I'm a part of it. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's the thing that is tricky of um, 
this system does actually uh, sort of work for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So, like, how do we kind of navigate that? And it works for us because we are, um, as a fellow clinician, probably using uh, insurance to bill mm-hmm. for our services, which is all about yep. <laughs> the bottom line. And so, you know, it's a capitalist system that we're involved in, and it's hard to shake it. It's hard to yeah. think about um, what would it look like to, um, and then we, you know, we have all, even our profession, even the profession of social work, it's like we're constricted by um, a lot of things that we didn't create, mm-hmm. but our NASW code of ethics. And what does it mean to, be able to not necessarily, I mean, there's a whole thing that we talked about last night about bartering for services. Um, what if you have a person who is living in a situation where they can't afford services and but can offer you something else? That that in our code is problematic, but if you look back, like, people have been bartering for services for centuries. Yeah. And, uh, so it's just, you know, I think it's like you start to think about it and it becomes... Um, like everything kind of unravels pretty quickly. Oh yeah, me we went on a deep dive with my kiddo because I was having a rant in the kitchen about capitalism, and then because I was like, money isn't real. It's not real, bud. It's not real. And, <laughs> and, like, allowance. and then uh, we were kind of like, well, yeah, let's like, when did like money get invented? So we got on the YouTube and found like this cartoon yeah. example of like here we went from like bartering to like gold coins to the banking and. And yeah, that's when my partner was very much like, it is real, Jenna, and do not teach our child otherwise. It's like, ah, you know it. I mean, if you're talking about survival, I think that is something that, you know, we really are, like you said, like, how do you wake up in the morning and access, you know, um, well-being? Part of that would be to to teach your child about the system that they're living in. And that that an individual like myself or you or your child are probably not going to single-handedly dismantle. Yeah. So there's this, like yes and that we have to kind of contend with all the time Mm -hmm. Um, that we live in an imperfect system and there are ways that we can critique it and then there are ways that we benefit from it and that I think is really complicated and I think it makes people uncomfortable Mm -hmm. not traumatized but uncomfortable to sit with the complications of those things because we do benefit from it and we also can be harmed by it and those two things can be true at the same time. Yep. And that's really hard for people to accept. And that's the dialectic of the human experience. I think when we talk about the human experience, there's a dialectic that's getting activated. And what we're seeing now, if we're talking about more of a global perspective, is people are uncomfortable with the yes and. They want to be either or. Yep. Yep. They want exactly. to be right or wrong. Yeah. Black and, Black and white. We find ourselves in this I mean, polarized, segregated, whatever segregated might have been the word we used in the 60s, but now we're polarized. Fine. Yeah. Same thing. Segregated better because Uh, I think it's more descriptive. But I think it's an interesting place in this moment in history to be within, um, in this conversation, in this mindset, and to consider, like, how do we hang in the middle? And not in a complicit way, but how do we actually tolerate the opposing things that we have to manage on a regular basis that are both true at the same time. I think it's hard. Really I want to say one more thing about capitalism before we go. <laughs> yeah. the, the, distinct, 
what distinguishes us from other countries like Norway, any um, other European country, is that capitalism and socialism coexist. Yeah. There are many, many, many examples of that. I think um, the, the countries get it. We don't. I mean, it's again, you either it's an either-or situation. Yeah, and if we really were to dig deep, and some people may disagree with me on this, but we also manage to coexist with a socialist, a lot of socialist programs. I mean, all of the programs that were introduced after uh, World War II are socialist programs. Yes, they are. So is um, accessing uh, public education, and so is Medicare and Medicaid. The police force. And the police force and the fire department. Well, I think that's what's so <laughs> hard is people, you have this whole black and white thing, right. but then that's a great example of how, but then it's all total bullshit because it's hypo- hypo- hypocritical, right? Yeah. Like, because they'll say on one hand, you want this one thing or you want it to be this way. And it's like, okay, well here, this is the program or the way that we can offer. It's like, no, that's socialism, right? But because you call it by this name or I'm going to call it by that name and make it bad, Let's just call Even it though. benefits. Like, you know, anyway. But, I mean, I think, you know, I think if we were just not afraid of that word, and I don't exactly, I mean, we could talk about the history of, like, the Red Scare, communism, whatever, but I don't exactly know the roots of why we, as a collective in what we now know as the United States, are uh, so adverse to I think it's yeah. racism white supremacy yeah. I, I, I would say because you then guess what everyone would have to get those socialist benefits and it's very clear in yeah. our country that we definitely don't want everyone getting yeah. those benefits the myth of the American meritocracy still exists if you just work hard enough you can get yeah. to be yeah where you know yeah it's funny person. though that we're using the term black and white because in the 60s that's where I grew up it was black and white. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it kind of continues to be yeah. at least black and white and brown. I mean, it is. It is. Yeah. The yeah. segregation, and I really do like that word in rather than polarization because I think it's much more descriptive about what's actually mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we. I took. Oh my God, we're. You might have to edit this. <laughs> I'll edit whatever you but want. But I to. took this. You <laughs> Let's know, get the other questions. The REI training, the racial. Equity Institute training that I think a lot of people are accessing for free during 2020. I think some foundation was giving um, an opportunity for people to, to take this training. And they were talking about affirmative action. And I mean, it was such an interesting um, question because like, well, when was the first example of affirmative action? And we were like, oh, it was in 19, whatever. We were like in the mod- modern times. And like, no, it was in like, I think it was 16... 19, not 1619, 1680, when, um, like, people were given white, when when race became sort of this construction, right, mm-hmm. where instead of European and Christian, it became white and black, um, they were given, like, the European Christian folks were given a, a bushel, a rifle, and, like, a certain amount of acreage of land, and that's actually <laughs> the first example of affirmative action because it was giving yeah. people who did not have power but who fell into this particular category um, opportunity. And everyone kept on thinking about it more from like, you know, a 20th century yeah. perspective. And I was like, oh, good God. 
it was a very eye-opening because it goes back to your statement of like this is uh, this is a systematic way of creating um, unequal conditions for people and to benefit other people and this giving white Christian European people like a bushel, a rifle, and some acreage of land back in the 1600s was actually the first example of affirmative action. And anybody who says they don't believe in affirmative action who is white, I always love saying that story to them. I'm like, oh, really? Well, let me share this little bit of history. And I should have gotten a little bit more specific around that history, but there were a couple of moments in that training where I was like, (laughs) in the middle of the listeners, her mind was just blown. My mind was blown. It's fun, though, because now we're circling back to what it, what does it mean to be human. And for us, it's this, it's this shared view of how we look at individualism and taking care of others and um, not being so um, ingrained in our own beliefs. Yeah. And well, a huge part of, like, human experience is the need the need for community right it's not just like oh i want it it's like you can't survive without community and i think that's why american individualism has been so toxic is because it really stripped the people's recognition of that they they need community and i think that it also makes it really hard because like you i live in omaha is omaha my community eh. You know, like, it, depending on how you get that, right? Like, so if you have spots here where you find those geographical people. geographical community, but maybe there's other non-geographical yeah. communities. Yeah, right? right? And, or yeah. maybe you, ha- yeah, you, just because you live in a place doesn't mean that you're going to connect to the community, like, the people community of that place. Or, like, me, I moved here and had no family here. So I had to really work to create that sense of family, which I think I've done a great job. You have. Yeah. But I'm also like a really outgoing person anyway, right? Like, so imagine someone who doesn't naturally have the skill set to like cultivate that. Um, And then like, you've been taught your whole life that being an individual and all this is the better way to go. So then you are just like, well, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So I think people are really disconnected to a sense of community um, because they haven't been taught what that like really is, like how humans really need that and what that like is going to fill like what community is going to give you and i think that's what you were i think you were talking about maybe not but that's where people get stuck yeah because they can't they they're so bogged down by their own stuff or maybe they just come innately um um i can't think of the word introverts but even inter, I mean, I think it's as hard for them to have a community, reach out for community. So it feels like it's that place where people tend to get stuck because they want to withdraw. Yeah. Yeah. I also think like um, my one of my friends came and spoke to my class last night, and she was talking about like human centric versus life centric. Um, and for those who are introverts, can find great comfort in being in a forest mm-hmm. or being with your animal kin, um, that community isn't just made up of people either. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's an excellent point. Mm -hmm. And And yeah, yeah. nature, like I definitely, the older I've been like more aware of like how important having nature outlets is Mm -hmm. and like, oh my gosh, had I known what I know now, I probably definitely would have like not, I would have lived somewhere more in nature. (laughs) I would have like cultivated my life there. Um, but yeah. 
Well, and think about how much nature kind of mimics um, the the natural like um, birth, death, rebirth cycles mm -hmm. that I think we go through um, either in a metaphorical sense um, or you know as we age and eventually um, our life no longer is what it is in this moment. I think it's important to kind of like we were even talking about this last night like. Um, I mean, kind of going back to the capitalism thing, but like we have monetized everything. So like when you're an EMDR uh, therapist, we were talking about this last night, you need like the beepers and the headphones and the thing and the butt that they need the training and the certificate and the thousands of dollars that it takes to become this certified EMDR. Well, really, if you just go outside, which is where Frances Shapiro was originally inspired by her idea, and take a walk, you will experience bilateral stimulation. Yeah. Just move your body and look around. Exactly. Yeah. And so, Nat, so we try to recreate, and this is her idea, I really like Megan, shout out, but it was so powerful, and I think students listening to like, what we try to construct in these four walls as it relates to healing is a byproduct of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And what we have been taught is we need these four walls and another person to heal us. Yeah. Which I actually don't know if it's so true anymore. Like what we might need is to be outside and connected to all life. And we might need to be in relationship to not just other humans, but to our larger community, which is the planet. Yeah. I mean, you know, so, and then we're also, if you look at the planet, like that's very symptomatic. Like that there's whatever's happening like, I remember with, during COVID, somebody had posted something like, um, you know, the trees, you know, that look like lungs, you know, like that look mm -hmm. like bronchial. Yeah. Those are on fire. And then we think about, like, what's happening on the, in the individual experience of sickness and, like, what COVID was doing to people's lungs at the time. And it's all just, it's so reflective and it can get... The other thing that I think is important to remember is that people have souls. Yeah. And that we're forgetting that part of the work we're doing is soul work. And it's not just trying to, like, get to this goal. Like, this is the outcome, and I have to get better, and I have to heal. And, like, healing's become this, like, point. This, But this point of, like, constant like, work. <laughs> I'm healing. I'm working on healing. I'm healing. I'm healing. I'm healing. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Yes. And you can also just be. And there's something around the point of accessing not this, like, end goal. Linear. Of, yeah, like, just what would it mean well, yeah. to just I think be because in the experience? It's also been individualized, right? Yeah. Our profession, and mental health especially, has been, this is, you, the individual, have a problem. I'm going to diagnose your yep. disorder and mm -hmm. tell you what's wrong with you, the individual, and then we're going to do CBT, we're going to get medication, and we're going to fix you right up. And that's why I've completely flipped my practice and why I bring up capitalism stuff because I go, you're not the problem. Nobody's the problem. Right? Yeah, yeah. Capitalism causes anxiety and depression. This stuff causes... And so like religion. No, so it's absolutely. So like, and, I can't tell you how many times I've said there's nothing wrong with you. And so no. many people... That's why <laughs> our profession is done and it's because of the greatest structures because if I, if I have you focused on you, the individual, is the problem, you're never going to point to capitalism. You're not going to point to white supremacy. That's right. You're not going to point to society. Yeah. yeah. And that's the way they want it. Because if you're pointing to society, oh, shit, we got to do something. We got to change. But if I keep you focused on you, 
you are sick, you are on yourself. Totally. And like that's like so you just notice my true crime poster. I love true crime and people this is gonna be a really unpopular opinion, but I don't care. The big push with true crime now is like, let's honor the victim. And I absolutely agree. Tragedy never wants someone to be murdered by a serial killer, and you should honor that person and they should get to have a story. But my interest is not in them because they didn't do anything. They are a victim and that sucks. My interest in how did this person become this way? Not because I want to idolize the serial killer, but we as a society, we aren't interrogating that. Yeah. Well, that's on us, guys. You know what? We probably could have prevented the next 10 if we would have allowed the interrogation of like the fact that there are societal factors that absolutely contributed to all of these various murderers and things, right? Like, and since I was a child, that has, like, been a weird thing that I have been obsessed with. And it just soothes me. It, like, soothes me to hear these stories mm. and get that information. Because it does, it, like, I don't believe in monsters. It isn't these individual humans. Like, they're not monsters. They're not evil. I cannot stand if one more person talks about, like, evil being a thing. No, guys. Uh, but, yeah, capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, like, all of these societal things mis- that, like... A misuse of power. Yeah. Abuse of power. Abuse of power yeah. and just, like, failure. Even, too, so many of them, it's, like, because their family didn't have what they needed. So then the family's perpetuating abuse, right? Like, it's just so... To me, it was so obvious that their society should take some responsibility. Um, but I feel like that's something that, like, whoo, that is not a popular opinion. I don't think people like to interrogate that very yeah. often. And especially therapists. I and yes, and in therapy, we are so gung-ho on, like, let me diagnose your disorder. But isn't it fun to get to a place where you can be eclectic? Well, I think that's you know, what like, social oh. work has taught me. Yeah. Is yeah. Like, that you have to look at the environment that the yeah. person is living yes. in. And almost always, that is a massive contributor to whatever the individual is coming to you to describe, like, this is what my problem is. I yeah. mean, well, if you work in a place that, like, upholds misogynistic values and you're a woman, yeah, I can understand why you might feel a little stressed every time you have to wake up and go to work. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. And so, I, you know, and it's like, there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. There might be something wrong with the way your, your work life is, um, <laughs> you know, structured yeah um so like how then how and then I think there is something that is like a massive relief which is hysterical because like when I say that to people like honestly I, I really don't think there's anything wrong with you but I'm happy to chat with you about whatever's <laughs> going on like yeah, I really will yeah. and I think there's like a massive sense of relief of like oh yeah and then they I, I have found, at least when I say this to myself, I have found that I'm like, I kind of relax a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not so stressed and tense of like, I have to change and I have to do this and this and this. When I'm just looking around, I'm like, no, I'm good. This, this, I have to work on changing collectively with other people. Yeah. This stuff. Yeah. Because I won't be able to do it on my own. Do you think we've been sold a steady diet of dough that, that perfect exists? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Or utopia is achievable. I think I have even that. The mythical norm. There's a mythical norm out there, which I'm looking at. Normal is an illusion. I love that poster. I know, right? But the mythical norm does not exist, and that's Beverly Tatum's work. I mean, we have been totally sold that idea. We've also been sold the idea that American meritocracy 
exists too if you just pull yourself up yeah. by your bootstraps. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guarantee my older family members have been sold that and still believe that to be true today. Oh, for sure. Even at Thanksgiving, my uncle, who I loved, mm-hmm. sweet, sweet man, in that picture over there, yeah. gave his little thankful blessing of like, so thankful that like our forefathers and the people who came here and blah, blah, and they were adventurous and they were this and they were that, mm-hmm. completely forgetting that there were people who already fucking lived here and right. they had to wipe them out first first to achieve the things you just described. And that's what I mean. I guarantee, like I knew, it's like, oh, bud. So my thankfulness was like, I'm going to thank the tribes whose stolen land we're currently on. Just to like, yeah, I like wanted to bring it back up. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, bud, I get it. Because we've all been brainwashed. That's why I call it. We've all lived in the brainwashing. Mm-hmm. So then you just have to figure out once you realize the brainwashing you don't The red want. pill, right? Um, but it was like, I'm just going to throw this reminder out that like, they didn't come here and were adventurous. They came here and they were very violent. Brutal. You know, and Brutal. and and they didn't. And that's the other thing I think we're sold. I think a lot of the mythology we're sold is like there was no other way. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, you totally could have tried diplomacy. You could have tried being like, okay, people who already live here. May we ask you questions about the way that you well, were? Well, I think there was, a, there was also a, a, those folks who came over here were persecuted, and they're like, okay, well, that we experienced that, so we can do that to other people. Like the dehumanization yeah. that just gets transferred from one group to the next, um, I think is also part of that yeah, story. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I didn't think of it that way, but that's a really great point. And as the queen has died and everyone's really relishing and remembering the monarchy, mm-hmm. like, it's just and funny. Yeah, like, it's so insane even, like, this moment with that, like, uh, I watched this YouTuber who, for fun, was like, we're going to watch conservatives respond to the death of the queen. And that's when I mean. it's, like, these Tucker Carlson and these dudes who any other day of the week would be like, fuck this, fuck that, like, America. And now all of a sudden they're queen worshiping. It's like we're the one, like we, your founding fathers who you guys love so much, like hated those guys. In fact, they left because of, and now we're going to like flip and just like have this weird moment where we pretend like that isn't your whole deal. (laughs) Well, they went, I mean, there's a, there's a a flavor right now for wanting to be a monarchy or wanting to be, you know. That's what it felt like. It's like, oh, you're just trying to prime your people. You know, one person wants to be king and, you know, he didn't get voted in the second time. (laughs) Well, I mean, talk about um, not looking at the parts of yourself. Like that person has uh, disassociated so much from the experience of losing. <laughs> literally cannot handle it. Yeah, right. And like has gone to great lengths to destroy uh, um, what some might describe as a democracy, although there's issues with the way we think about democracy sometimes too. But like, yeah, can't even tolerate, this is what I'm saying, like when you cannot tolerate the complexities that exist within you and that you exist in, you do dangerous things. Yeah. So, so we've, we've all been able to talk about identifying all of this as part of the human experience. Yes. Which was your original question. This is how the three of us are articulating that. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, what now? What do we do? I mean, that's the question. I think people fall into that black and white trap because they can't figure out how to, what can I change in my daily life or what could I do? that would um, 
make you feel better about it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like that's, we're not able to do that anymore because we're so um, mired in our categories. Well, and I think, because we wanted to talk, and we're, I think this is a great segue to boundaries, right? We wanted to talk about boundaries today, and when I hear that question, I think that's kind of a little bit of part of what you're asking is like, because that's what you need. You need boundaries with human people in yeah. your life, but you also like need boundaries with like these systems. Information you take. And yeah, and exactly, and hundred percent. I will yeah. just say one of the boundaries I've had for a while now, probably since two thousand nineteen or something. I cannot intake the news in any way other than literal late night uh, YouTube clips. So like Seth Meyers does like a closer look recap of the news. I will watch that, and that is. Because I can't, I can't tolerate it. Mm-hmm. I get overwhelmed by it. I, it kind of like consumes me. Um, I've never been like a local news watcher anyway. Um, but like I would do your CNNs. I would do Twitter or whatever. I cannot be on Twitter, period. Yeah. <laughs> the social media I cannot handle. And I at first was like nervous about that boundary. I was like, is it too extreme? Am I being out of touch? Because I do not want to be like out of touch. Absolutely. But I do want to be able to tolerate the complexity I live in. Yeah. And I feel like I'm someone who works pretty hard to be informed and is pretty engaged. And so I've come to the conclusion that it's, for me, this is an okay boundary. I am functional. I am way less stressed. I am way less anxious. Um, And I think that's a lot to do with how I'm consuming the information about the world around me. And I feel like I'm still informed, though. I don't feel like I am out of touch. And so... Um, that's the balance I'm striking at the moment with yeah. like that information. And you're not perpetrating your anxiety in other people, and I think that's kind of where we're at now too. Is that yeah. we're all anxious and kind of bringing that to the table, and then that just raises up, you know. Well, yeah, then we, then we neuroception. Here, Our nervous systems are here. linking regardless, right? And so yeah. many people are out of like don't even know how, what their nervous system is, let alone to be know when it's activated. And, um, and so, yeah, even if people aren't intentionally doing that, it's happening, like, I think all the time. Yeah. I think just naturally. have bodies. You do. <laughs> I, I, I Social workers have bodies. But, so what are some boundaries you guys maybe have navigated, whether it's with people to just improve those relationships, whether it's specifically what we were talking about with, like, the shit within the world, or... Um, just navigating being a woman in the patriarchy. It's funny because I was up at that blue line, <laughs> across, up at the blue line, and we were, I was talking to my two friends, both social workers, and they said, I'm going to write a book called Women with Boundaries. And it had no writing in it, I just had the cover of it. <laughs> yeah. And then I was thinking about, um, so what does that mean? And I was thinking about my experience, which is, one of the things that just makes me crazy, and it's, I think it's a, a female thing, or a, it's not a male thing, mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. is that we're always saying we're sorry. Mm-hmm. All day, I wonder how many times a day women say they're sorry. For some, I touched you on the knee. I came, you know, gently came across you as I was reaching for something else. And I just come to the place where I look at women. I know I've been on this for a long time because I send my niece stuff all the time about it. And uh, also a social worker. And um, it just seems so demoralizing to have to say that all the time. Or that we choose to say that. Or we have the feeling that that's necessary to say 
And I swear that doesn't isn't a male construct. Oh, I would say that's a patriarchal construct of socializing women. You need to take up as little space as possible. So if you take up any extra space ever, right, I gently bump you. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-oh, I have taken up your space, even in the most simplest way. I have to apologize, right? Because that's what I hear when I think about that, is it's like about that many different ways that they want us to be small, quiet. Mm Mm-hmm. So the t- the topic woman with boundaries was mine, and it was because of my coffee up the, up the street, having been I think a day of being out in the universe and women just I'm just like then once you're into it you're just like radar. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's all you can see. That's all I can hear. Yeah, you pay attention. Yeah, how many people today said I'm sorry? And um, then it was a conversation with Kara. I just you know when I need a. When I need a fix, she's the one I go to for intelligent conversation. Um, and I hope she tells a story about what she said to her class this this year after 12 years of teaching. And then, of course, you know, for intercultural, it's the whole um, choice issue, you know. Mm-hmm. I just feel like those three things have kind of come into focus for me as I sort of thought, what, what does it really mean to be women with boundaries? Well, and I want—I want to hear your story from class, but I—I was going to disappoint. Do no, you not? Really? No, I yeah. I wish I'd written it down. <laughs> but I Her found beta. out that, like, also, and I don't know if this is necessarily like a socialized female thing or what, but like, I realized, like, I had fucking no boundaries, you guys. I listened to Terry Cole. Don't know if you've heard of Terry Cole. Mm-hmm. She wrote some books called Being a Boundary Boss. I had a podcast she was on. It was lovely because Terry helped me recognize. She's like, are you that easygoing girl who's like, where do you want to go to dinner? And you're like, I don't care. And I was like, of course. She's like, that just means you have zero boundaries. And I was like, shit, she's right. Like, because I, I so, and I, I think this was part of my being raised. I know I have a whole thing where I just really do like to be the cool girl, and that's on me. But, like, I think that, I don't know, there was part of, like, my family structure and all of it, but I was like, oh, my God, yeah, like, I just have no value because I just, it's so important. I felt like it was better to be not a problem, Mm -hmm. and I don't necessarily know where all of that came from. Definitely, partly my dad, love him, but yeah. (laughs) He likes the gal who isn't a problem. Yeah, um, I'm sure he does. And, and you know what I mean? And so I was like, oh my gosh, this is not, I don't want, I don't like it. It does not feel good, right? I realized even though it was like easy to say, I don't know where I want to eat, how many meals am I having that I don't fucking want to have, right? And that just like was the epiphany I needed to really start having boundaries everywhere. Like I started with, I will never say I don't care to where I want to go to eat again. And I started with just that. I'm going to just just focus on that. I'm going to make myself sit and think and come up with a couple of actual options, right? So I'm starting to have, and then I would have more meals I enjoyed. Oh my God, that felt great. And so then it was just like a domino effect of recognizing in a lot of areas where maybe I was like being, thought I was having boundaries, but really it was just, I didn't have any at all. And like navigating, creating those has been Hard, but so helpful. I feel, again, feel like a better person. Yeah. You're much more evolved than I was at your age. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's huge. But I don't know if it's true, but I'll take it. <laughs> All right. What boundaries did you set as a teacher? Well, I think it's a, I think this is a tricky part of being um, somebody who's trained as a clinician 
And then somebody who's also an educator. Because I was, it, I think it resonated with me so much. <laughs> you know. I know exactly what I And thought. also someone who has socialized as a woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a certain energy that I think I might put out there that um, invites people to tell me all of the complications of their life. <laughs> Yeah. Well, approachability. Don't you think we all have that, yeah. right? There's a certain amount of approachability. Two sides of a coin. Yeah. yeah. It's a good point and it's bad. Yeah. And I also, because of my training, um, do tend to be empathic towards the complications of people's lives. And it's in sometimes what feels like opposition to my role as an instructor, which is... Um, I am trying to model, to some degree, what it might be to be a good clinician, um, and also teach, and and hold students to certain expectations that um, will be asked of them when they enter into the field, which includes meeting deadlines, which may be a capitalistic structure, but that doesn't mean they cannot meet deadlines. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are certain things that I am aware of that I'm going to say that fall into line with the structures that we are currently working in that have yet to be dissolved or dismantled because I don't know if I'll see that in my lifetime. So meeting deadlines, um, you know, just sort of uh, managing the complications of your life and also working. <laughs> Tough. Yeah. Uh, and what I discovered um, this summer, which was a great time to discover because I was only teaching one class, was uh, how exhausted I think I felt all the time because I was taking on, probably unconsciously, absorbing the complications of my students' lives and then taking care. So I have like what I think is probably a pretty gnarly combo of like a victim complex and a savior complex. <laughs> <laughs> you can't get into this work without a savior complex, right? Combo. And so I have this savior complex when it comes to my students. Like, yes, I will make this easy and better for you. Yeah. And then I get resentful yeah. um, when making something easier and better for somebody makes my life more difficult. Yes. So I kind of had this moment, and it was a moment that um, I like. I sat with my partner and like really hashed it out. I'm like, I don't know how to communicate this. And this is the beauty about being an educator is that I have this opportunity to like really think and then deliver the message that I need to deliver. It you know with with the opportunity to reflect and think and have like a week's time to do so. And so I came back to my students and I said, I think I'm doing you a disservice. By, and then I explained to them this gnarly combo that I have. Like, I did a little self-disclosure of, like, here is what I know about myself. Mm-hmm. I've got this savior slash victim complex. And when they clash, it's real gnarly, and I get upset and angry um, at myself. And then I project that out onto the people who are around me. And I said, I think I'm just doing you a disservice by sort of, um, in the past, unconsciously absorbing the complications of your life. And... What I'm going to try to do from now on as an educator is really hold my role as an educator um, in this position that's true and clear. 
And I don't need to know the complications of your life. That's not my role. I'm not your therapist and I'm not your clinician. There are people in your life that you have access to that can listen to those complications and help you think through them. But in this role, in this position, my goal is to instruct. And by absorbing the complications of your life, I don't think I'm giving you an opportunity to manage those complications with either on your own or with somebody who truly knows you well. And so I'm just setting that boundary for myself so that I'm not putting myself in a position of feeling like I have this like desire to save you and then get mad about it later. Because it's a terrible feeling to hold that feeling. Yeah. I have that in myself. So um, I said that to my students and I, I think... I think they understood it. I also think the other thing that I helped them, that I sort of revealed to them was like, and as much as it's, you know, sometimes when, when I was in second grade, I would see my teacher out of the grocery store and I was like, what? <laughs> she has feet? What? <laughs> why isn't she in the classroom? Like, why isn't she living in the classroom? It was confusing to me. And I, as much as I want to give my students obviously more credit than my second grade brain, but I do have to remind them like, you know, um, I'm a person and a human, and I also have my own complications in life that I need to manage. And um, I want you to imagine that in this setting, I'm here to instruct you, but also imagine me in my home with my family and my life, just like you've asked me to do for you. Um, and so with that, I was clear and said, um, I, I can't do that anymore and it's it's not I'm not mad at them I was upset and disappointed in myself but I don't think I was able to articulate it until that moment um as somebody who's in a role of instructor I was like why is this tough why why do I feel like I'm carrying the weight of 17 people because you're tap dancing <laughs> yeah. and you're, you yes. know, truly yeah. I, it was it wasn't really moving myself towards any level of preservation like self-preservation and it you know, to quote one of my favorite singer-songwriters, self-preservation is a full-time occupation. <laughs> and I'm the only one who can really um, engage with that. And that is uh, something that I shared with my students. And I'm hoping that they'll take that and use it in their own work. Like, you are there not to save your clients or fix your clients or make things easier. You are there to create conditions that help facilitate whatever your client needs. Yeah, and what they've identified as they need and what yeah. they need. Um, you are not there to fix. And I think I got into this trap of like trying to fix things for my students. And that's an interesting reenactment. <laughs> so anyway, that was my boundary. And I'm. it's going to be, it's not something that like, oop, got this figured out. I've articulated it and I've shared it with people, but I still have to, I'm, I'm still... Um, I'm still working that program. Yeah, that's the hard part about boundaries, right? Is you yeah. have to enforce them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dang I'm still it. working that program. What do you mean? Like, uh, I didn't just vocalize it and it'll be totally respected every time? Oh. And it, might yeah. be, it might be something that I'm, uh, that's going to be, I think I always try to also remind people, like, none of this is like, oh, got that, done, never have to look at that again. Like, it's so, it's such a lifelong um, yeah. 
you know, not to sound cliche, but the lifelong journey. Well, ba- boundaries aren't five on a scale of one to ten. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this before. You know, most most people don't know what their boundaries are until you cross them or mm-hmm. somebody else crosses them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wish we could foresee all of this, but we can't. Mm-mm. It's part of the experience, you know. And I thought it made me a good educator to mm-hmm. take care of like, everybody, mm-hmm. extend all the deadlines, and like, oh yeah, no, it's fine, and da da da. And I, and I, and I don't know if that actually. I mean, I think there's obviously flexibility and empathy in our role as social workers or educators, but I, I don't actually think it was like I said. I don't think it was doing um, the people that were taking my class a service. Well, and I remember when I was teaching. Uh, which ended three months. I mean, it's like, this is mm-hmm. the reason. Is I remember, no, this was in the undergraduate program. I remember the students complaining about sort of the same thing. Well, you know, I've got this, I've got that, I've got a delay. And I, and I just looked and said, do you say the same things to your male professors? Yes. And they were just yes. stunned. And I said, mm-hmm. you know, why aren't we being treated the same way? That's a great, I would never thought to ask it, but it's so true. It's so true. We have one faculty on in the social work department, and he's a man, and I, he does not deal with us Mm-mm. at all. They would never and think of it. And it is being socialized, mm-hmm. like I said, as a, as a woman, as a girl, we are socialized to, like, caretake. Oh, for sure. And, and people are socialized to look at you as a, as care- a caretaker, right? And, and I think, you know, that's a slippery slope. And and I would say teaching in general is a profession that gets that on it, right? Uh, Too in a way that might be different than other professions that females are in. But like teachers for sure are looked at as like the catch-all outside of a parent Mm kind of thing. Yeah, and and it's it's a good reminder for me because it's like there's all these um, external forces that are at play that really have nothing to do with my students um, that I just have to name. And, and bring to some and help them see like this is what's going on this is how I'm conceptualizing it and I'm asking you to respect this boundary yeah it's fun play I mean it's it's fun to have that kind of clarity mm-hmm. you know because um, I've known you as a teacher for a long time and I've known you as a student and a friend and whatever but it it was so I, as you were telling me the story I'm like well, wait a minute, I need a pen. <laughs> you know, I, just, I wanted to write it all down and said, this is your article, you need to publish it. I'll, I'll write, you know, I was just like, this is an epiphany because it really tells, teaches your students not only what you need, but what they can ask for or what they need. And I just thought it was so, um, well, I'm so happy. And there's this reenactment, I think, that we sort of see people as helpless and that we need to help yeah. them. And I, I actually don't think people are helpless. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. That comes up a lot. I again, That's another thing I learned from Terry uh, was boundaries and codependency. Yeah. And everybody has some codependency going on, sure. and that's really what codependency is. It's like a version of like looking at this other person as helpless or that they're going to whatever react in this way, and so you're trying to manage that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, if we can just step back and like, well, do you really think that person is helpless? Probably not. You, don't, you know, that's not your true opinion of them. Right. But we're so clouded in that way that we don't recognize that's what we're doing. Yeah, and then we recreate the experience for that individual of, you're right, I am helpless and I don't mm-hmm. have any power in this situation. 
Yeah. And I do. I think that's a terrible disservice to do to anybody that's yeah. in a classroom setting. Yeah. But specifically, people who are looking to become social workers, like if I'm teaching you that you're powerless and helpless, are you just gonna do that to the people that you're serving? Yeah. Shoot. No. Absolutely not. That is not what I'm trying to do. So it's like holding students, holding people accountable and also reminding them that they have choices. Mm-hmm. Like you can be the good enough student and that can be a really good Absolutely. choice. Yeah. That can feel really good. The only way I got through my PhD is somebody said to me one day, what do they call what, what do they call a the good enough dissertation? No, what do they call a student who oh, oh. got all B's? A PhD, what do they call a student who got all B's? I can't remember what it was. Doctor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, I've always considered myself well, yeah. a B, kind of B plus on a good day, B minus. That's kind of the range I operate in. Um, I was fortunate never to be in a type a type A person, and yeah. thank God. Well, the same here. Like when I went to I went to a school that was psychoanalytic, so they the first day orientation was um, the good enough student, which is D W Winnicott's idea of the good enough parent, right? We I'm mm-hmm. sure we talked about this at some point, and I'm like, what? What is that? And they're like, you're gonna have to write a lot in this program, <laughs> <laughs> and you need to understand that, like perfecting whatever it is, the seven papers you need to write in a week, um, is going to burn you out. Yeah. And so like think about it from the a good enough like the good enough mm-hmm. perspective. And I'm like, I love that. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for me to honestly like because I am type A, it's hard for me to kind of embrace that. And I know it's hard for some of the students in my class to embrace that. But I think the more we give permission to um, you know, have a I mean I think that's a boundary too of like, you know what? I've been working on this for three hours. That's good enough. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go outside and hang out next to my favorite tree. And that's just as important as, you know, anything else, right? Or go have a bite to eat with my favorite people or whatever the, yeah. the thing is. Like, there, you know, what is this, like, thing that we have to yeah. Well, yeah, we're in a place where, like, so many people, it's like, I have to remind them that no rest is very valuable and important, and you probably shouldn't forego rest to get this other thing, because it's probably not going to lead to that Mm -hmm. conclusion anyway, because your meat suit, I call the body the meat suit, (laughs) your meat suit needs that, so, (laughs) like, I always think of Lady Gaga's meat suit. Like, yes. Is that where you got it from? I know. Somebody, this is not my thing. Somebody else referred to it as the meat suit. And I was like, oh, I like that because I like the detachment, but also, like, the detachment in a way where I figure out, like, oh, I got to give this organic thing some business, right? Yeah, like, you actually you have know. to feed it. Yeah, like, you got to feed it. You got to put stuff into it. It's like, oh, yeah. And to your point about we're spiritual beings in a meat suit, yeah. right? Like, that's how I like to think of we're it. All, it's like, so you got to remember to take care of the meat suit because it really <laughs> <laughs> affects the functioning of the yeah. rest of the spiritual being Absolutely. you know yeah um, okay, I think as as because we've all studied maslow that people are wanting to be in this existential conversation without having you know sort of the basic things that get you to that place have you, you heard about maslow? maslow well yeah i think he was 
there's a little um wasn't he uh, he colonized that pyramid and well, flipped and it around that wasn't, that wasn't his worst fault <laughs> yeah i was gonna say this is what i, I was gonna I criticize do, i do like it as a way to understand things now um, oh, for sure this is yeah no yeah, yeah, yeah. Hands, wasn't yeah. he in, well, no, and I would say, I don't know. Sexualizing his students or patients or something? Well, I mean, I think you can guarantee that probably every person in power in in the... The patriarchy. I think he might have acted on it maybe a little more than... I'm going to say, like, let's talk about the, uh, you know... Well, I will say what's detrimental about Maslow's uh, hierarchy is, um, like, in the way that I learned it, when I found it, like, so it was some Native American culture that he was studying, and so he took that from them and, like, applied his own stuff. But I think what he did that was wrong is they had it the other way, right? It's like you need community mm-hmm. to feel safe and secure and right, and then you can get to these other places. And the thing that I have always, from the gate with Maslow's, felt like it was kind of depressing, even before I knew this, is I always thought, how do people in poverty ever get up here? If you can't ever ensure your safety, your bare, your basic needs, and a lot of people can't, what they can't ever achieve, like self-act, and and that's and I and I really bought into Maslow's. It made sense, but I always thought that was really really sad about it. And then I yeah. worked in a really poverty-heavy population, and that's when I was like, this doesn't make sense right. though, because I see these, and I'm working with these kids, and they have so much of this, but they go back to this traumatic environment not just poverty but like the trauma of their families Mm -hmm. and so that's why I like always was like well there's something off and so when I heard the flip side of it I was like "Ooh, okay that was the tweak we needed because it's like you can reach that you can even if like you aren't getting some of these basic needs and to your point about other cultures around the world and how they experience trauma or not right exactly it's like okay you don't have to necessarily have this all super intact to get here Right, you can. It's more fluid. Yeah, yeah it's way more fluid, and, and that you can uh, the, the the need for because community is like up here, and it needs to be further down. Right, like we need to recognize the importance of that, just yeah. as important as like a basic need, as opposed to it being like a ooh but fluffy it, higher thing. You it's get to. the term self actualization doesn't fit for me. Yeah, no, yeah, that, yeah, totally. Who who that, achieved that? Nobody. <laughs> exactly. I mean, maybe one time in nineteen eighty two for a week. But, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think it, again, it's it's like I've made it to the point. Yeah. Instead of it's going to be rise and fall, rise yeah. and fall, plateau. Yeah. Um, so I wish I you know I wish a different word. I it needs yeah. a different word because it a lot of this does make sense. You it's got just it. Like you got a, the word. It's just like a. Oh, you look like you were having an epiphany. It's a cycle. <laughs> I'm self actualizing over here. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what it looks like? Okay. This is what it looks oh, like. Stop it. No, I'm just I think it's just a, there's so much like it's cyclical. like a cone of cycle, like a cyclical. cyclical. Yeah. When I think of I like, things and in it cycles, goes up and down. Yeah. It's not a, absolutely it's on different planes. Mm-hmm. Um, it rises and falls. Yeah. I also think it's interesting. You know, safety is, um, I think, a false promise. <laughs> As right we, as we move especially i mean i tell my students this all the time they're like this is a safe space i'm like you cannot promise that to anybody yeah i think that's a false promise and um someone will pick up very quickly on the fact that you actually can't ensure their safety um maybe in that moment you could provide an opportunity for people to feel safe but it's not up to you to give them that 
And I always think like as we move into a real period of uncertainty as it relates to our climate and resources and water and food and air and all of the things that we actually do need to live, um, I just don't think safety is going to be guaranteed. And it's not guaranteed. I can't think of what I'm trying to say, but I mean, I think you can help people understand what safety means to them. Yes. And I, I remember having a client a long time ago, and I mean, I went to the map for this. They, she was in an abusive situation. The husband had broken the front door, and she had no door, and mm. she had no lock for a door if she had it. And so, but they wanted to pay 50 bucks an hour for her to go to therapy. This is way back when. And I said, but where's the money for the door? What? Why aren't we buying her a door and a lock? And then we can talk about these other things, which is yeah. hassle. I mean, I can't protect her from that guy coming back, but sure, it sure helped yeah. if she had a door yeah. and a yeah. lock. And they're like, no, no. And I just went, I just can't believe we're having this conversation. Well, I think And I found somebody who had the money yeah. and just got her a door. Yeah. I think about Maybe this, like 600 bucks. I think about the story I read, and I think it was... But it was, uh, you know, somebody was crying in the, in the therapist's office, and the therapist handed the person a tissue. Like, I don't know, people may have some issues around tissues, but, oh, issues around <laughs> tissues. Is there um, around tissues? Well, some people are like, don't hand someone a big and get to own tissue. I mean, there's a whole thing. Yeah, there's a lot of opinions. But there's, about whatever. Where so to they, have them, not have them. I feel bad for <laughs> you guys. <laughs> oh, my God. Very minimal, and yeah. we have completely missed the boat. I mean, to stranger danger, 
95% of sexual abuse happens by people you know. Right. So why did we have a whole stranger danger thing, right? And that's still, that's still perpetuated yeah. a lot. We're starting to recognize it more, but it's still kind of the big deal when it's like, so we're not, we're not hitting any of the actual right. sexual so abuse. So how do you, how do you tell somebody, how do you disclose, like, you know, m mom, um, I know I'm supposed to be respectful to this coach, but this is what happened. Like, what I'm trying, I'm not trying to scare kids either, yeah. but I am trying to scare parents a little bit of like, no, it's the uncle, the cousin, the coach, the stepbrother, the boyfriend, the priest, whomever. Yes. Those are the people you have to yes. really just help your child remember their comfort and their body and that yes. their bodies are theirs and da 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 da. When I told my sister this, she's like, made her, she's, you know, it's like, I <laughs> Well, in crime in general, be the, the like, person yeah. that you know, <laughs> the crime in general. That's what like crime. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be sexual abuse. Any crime. Again, I mean, it's, it's probably a little bit loader, but like you know. it's perpetrated by people you know, someone you have a beef with. So, like, rarely is it this random yeah. act of violence or theft yeah. or whatever. <laughs> um, but all of our messaging, so much of our programming, is based on the random scary. Because think about it. Think person. about the out group versus the in group. If the people in your in group are dangerous, your whole entire world is completely disorganized, yeah. and people can't handle that. Yeah, they cannot handle it. It is yeah. too much. It's true. But so it's a lot simpler to go back to this us versus them, or black and white, or right or wrong, or blah, like. It's, it's not our family. It's the stranger outside of our family. And that goes in, you know, we just apply that idea to almost everything that we see in our country as it relates to immigration or, you know, people that don't look like me or that don't live in my neighborhood or that they're the dangerous ones. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> no. It's the creepy uncle that you go see once a year who, you know, that, no, no, I'm just not nuts suggesting that but I'm just saying like it's the people you know yeah. that are often the ones that are going to hurt you the most yeah not the strangers I think that's a real hard concept for people who believe in this in-group out-group idea that that is true no for sure it completely disorganizes the way they have created their internal representations of the world yeah, and I think these are all the people who, right, are gonna maintain relationships with toxic, toxic people yeah. because they're your family or they have this title, right? And so then it's this other thing where we're not aware of the potential true dangers, but also then we're also continuing to perpetuate a cycle of just toxicity because, well, that's what family does, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, right? It's not based on, to your point, like, but it's not based on the experience. It's based on the idea. Well, the idea America has is is family first. You, if it's your mom, you got to put up with whatever terrible shit she does to you because it's your mom. Like we have this right, um, and like you know, and now it's opposed to the actual lived experience. Well, my lived experience with this person, her name might be mom, but it seems fairly abusive. It seems like it's not good, right? Like instead of like honing in on that, we get swept away by the weird ideas that are out there about it. I always think like. I'm it's a lot. It's a lot easier. Oh, don't get me. Sorry, I'm Freud. Like, my what? Daughter, my daughter's getting her master's. I just had a long talk about Freud. Like, I'm sorry. The Freud. older I get, speaking of being a woman, like the older I get, like yeah. learn about. Psychoanalysis like, was based on the, the more denial of women's reality. Exactly. I and the, or even the blame. 
like, oh my god, sorry. Well, it's just I like mean, men sorry, from I history are such <laughs> trash. Also, I knew I could get this response. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, oh, yeah, I can't. But I think it's interesting. It's the same with like when you look at a child who is in an abusive family, the idea is I'm going to blame myself for the experience of this harsh reality because that's what I have control over. The child has zero control mm-hmm. over what the parent or the caregiver does. And it would be totally, I think, disorganizing if we're talking about trauma to imagine that the world outside is a dangerous place. And that world is their social world. It's their family. Yeah. It's their school. It's their whatever. That is a dangerous place. That is disorganizing to a child. Yeah. And though if I change my behavior, then so-and-so won't hurt me. If I change my behavior, then... Right. So it's, mm-hmm. it gets That's sort of point. embedded at a very young age. Um, and it's hard to undo that. Yeah. So when you start to see the world as, I'm the problem, uh, or... This is, you know, it's hard. Well, and that's reinforced, like we were talking about earlier, yeah. that narrative that you, the individual, are the problem, disordered, yeah. something's and wrong you with control, you, that is reinforced yeah. in so many ways. So if you have that very individual, personal experience within being abused in your family, oh, you're getting that message 20 times over, and now you're an adult. Yeah. yeah. Where it's like, totally. And, and you're the one who's supposed to solve the climate crisis, because you're not recycling. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? You know, but I do think, you know, that's, that is sort of this idea of, it's the... And then eventually you try to work to help the person when they're a little bit older and they have more mature psychological capacities to understand mm-hmm. that maybe, in fact, um, you didn't have any control over what happened to you. And that's kind of scary, too. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> I want this to end in a sleepover. <laughs> <laughs> yes! Is With that what we're doing? Should we wrap it up? Go get our jammies? Yes! I know, right? I it's all muggy. Hours. Hours. I just love. Another thing is, I just love listening to you guys talk. It's just so fun. It's interesting to see where we're all in different generations. I think. I don't know how old you are. I'm 38. For like another month. <laughs> I'm in my I'm in my 40s. I'm a 46er. I'm 68, baby. I'm gonna be okay, the 50s. Okay, the 50s person. But um, it's fun to hear you talk. It's fun hear my daughters talk and you know the things that they've taught me it's just um I'm, I'm sure they think I'm a slow learner but um you know like they I can't the whole concept of they you know when they talk about they in my mind I mean I'm 68 years old all I can hear is there's more than one person do you know what I mean and oh, yeah. so I'm Thanks trying to get find a way to navigate you've also that. been socialized to think about gender in a binary yeah, construct yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah just like we've been socialized like, there are some things that we have to, like, be gentle with ourselves. Yeah. We have to unlearn these things. But it took you 68 years yeah, I know. to be socialized know. in a certain way. And now you're like, you know, know. So I think you have to give yourself a little permission. To well, you know, I can learn. I just have to figure out a way yeah. to do that that works for me. Because I think of myself as a very open and authentic person. It's just my language is not kept up with. Well, I think that's the difference. You're not going, this is hard. I don't like it. I'm not doing it. <laughs> Which is the response. You're is like, hard. this is hard. I'm i got to figure out a way. Like, but I'm going to try. It does take, you know, you know even, um, yeah, like not saying guys. Oh, well, that was so yeah. hard for me because I use guys as a gender neutral term. Yeah, I remember for, that. You know? You've always used that. Yeah, word. I really, and so that, I, I was very, I, I worked in a high school 
before this for six years. And, and so that was my learning curve is like, ah, and I did the GSA, the Gay Straight Alliance for the kids. So I was great that I had the youth who taught me and like, I, they were very graceful and I'd be like, yeah. ugh, I know that that's not right, but I'm so used to it. So folks, now I've replaced guys with folks. Yes, and I that has too. worked out great. Yeah, like, I love the word folks. Yeah, folks. Mm-hmm. I do too. Or youths. I used to call them youths. Youths. The youths. The youths. Hey, youths. How are you doing? (laughs) That's from the musical Hair. No. (laughs) I was like, I don't know that one. I can't wait to see how she edits this. (laughs) Oh, maybe I won't. We are all over the place. Oh, my God. I don't think so. so, No, I thought it was really great. For me, as a as a woman, trying to figure out and be and be available, or at least be a champion for other women. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's my human experience. As is yeah. capitalism and socialism. But for now, it feels I I feel very, very strong and need to find ways to be champions for women because man, it is not a pretty place right now. Oh yeah, it's rough out there. It is. And the definitions of men, I mean, it's becoming, when I use men are polarized, but what are we using? Segregated. Segregated. And as it's segregating, it's going back to like the 1950s, and it's just, man. So, trying to figure out ways to be champions for women, um, that's kind of a human experience thing for me, and I want to do more of that figure out ways to do that isn't it interesting that we as a species like did that like where we were like this version of the species is inferior like i've heard that clip on like the social media where they're like we're the only species who looks at the female version as the weaker version like would you go up to a shark like you get bit by a shark and you would be like ah you got bit by a lady shark right (laughs) but what i love that i do love that because it's so true it's like what you should be hurt you got bit by a lady shark (laughs) you know like it's like that doesn't happen because i think that the asshole conservatives they love to use like biological inheritance or like nature as like see proof like especially with gender stuff look there's men and there's women look at the spe- animal species there's I'm men sure and women blah 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 <laughs> and like yeah and then it's like it's not true anyway yeah, not true. but like they love to pull from that and it's like okay brah like if you're really gonna pull that like look at the animal kingdom they don't mess around like that with um the female species like yeah. literally that don't treat their female species the way that you do so well i think at one point <laughs> in the history of human existence um there was a matriarchy okay when i went to crane because again sheltered little small town kansas girl yeah. coming to the big city i remember being like I don't understand how the patriarchy happened. Like, I literally would be like, I don't get it. You guys, we fucking make life. I'll tell you how. How did we ever, I would be like, how do we ever let them think that they're better than us? But then did you take a couple of classes and learn about the origin story of the... No, I did take one of the women gender... But you know, the only thing I remember about that class is that I wrote... Oh, Barbie, I love it. I wrote a thing on abortion, and it was like, should the men... (laughs) be involved (laughs) and I don't know what conclusion I came to at 19 you guys coming off of my Catholic religious trauma so I was still steeped in that I probably came of like well they should be able to like talk 
<laughs> but that was that's all I remember is like my paper for that class was on abortion, but like on do men have a say or not? Do we have to talk to them? <laughs> no. But you but, so no, you think there was a matriarchy. Well, I mean, I do. I believe that at some point in our, I mean, if you look at some of the stories, I would, I too, am brought up as a woman, raised as a Catholic. I mean, the story of Adam and Eve absolutely demonizes women. Yeah. As like we're blamed for why we oh, don't live in paradise. Yes, exactly. Like but literally I think everything. That's just one story, but that's the story that we were sold mm-hmm. and it's believed still in. Being sold. Oh, yeah. so yeah, exactly. It's but huge. I think if you look at like um, the history of pagans, or you look at the history of um, you know witches and, and women that were in tune with nature and used nature to like inform and heal each other, that did exist at one point. And it was re- it was revered, and a lot of healers and communities were were women. I mean, we can bleed without dying. True. Well, I think that's what <laughs> there's the disservice. Like, I hate that I don't know. And I took an amazing Native American studies course at Creighton, which did you take revolution? Yeah, revolutionized yeah. me. But even. Um, you know, that's why it's like how many of those communities were matriarchal versus patriarchal or whatever. Or like, spirited. I mean, yeah, or yeah, or even yeah. a whole different thing. Yeah. And and I just like we lost so much of that knowledge, which yeah. sucks. Um, sucks. You know, because I think also if you look at you know, I think this is I want us to think from a symbolic perspective, but Mother Earth <laughs> is being destroyed. Yeah, and uh, I think being destroyed by. Uh, absolute abuse of power and um, destruction of and hoarding of resources god damn yeah hoarding of resources hoarding of resources I swear to god if I hear someone fanboy over goddamn Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos again I'm gonna punch him in the face yeah because it's like what are they doing what are they doing oh I'm sorry I'm sorry what what yeah Nothing, and they literally could solve so many problems with their wealth right now. But I'm sorry, what? What's happening? Oh, nothing. I okay, okay. Can we get over they the? They want to take their penises to the moon. I ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and Elon Musk didn't invent shit. This is gonna be my last little tirade. He came from like mine resources in Africa. <laughs> Well, we've clearly oh, gone off the rails. So, any final thoughts for the listeners? Final thoughts. Have friends and colleagues like the two of you. Just where you can totally be yourself, that you've evolved into having community. I had somebody say they're going to take their penis to the moon. Get that penis to the moon. You better put that in there or I will never see it. <laughs> oh, it's, it's oh all staying God. in. <laughs> I gotta keep myself. But yeah, I, what, what was the question? Final thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I got sidetracked. Uh, yeah, I think that, well, here's what I love too is um, I truly believe as much as it is difficult and the things we talk about are sobering and somber, um, you got you gotta laugh or you just cry your eyes out. Yeah, that's another one of my favorite singer songwriters. <laughs> but you know, like I think part of it is oh, in addition. <laughs> well, do, 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 that's do, do. true. I do think that there is um, a real special.
special thing that happens when people laugh. Good medicine. Very. For sure. Good medicine. When I will say my final thought is part to what you were saying, Barb, get people also who you can have this kind of secure attachment. I haven't seen Barb you in how many years? And before I started working here, yeah. you and I feel it's just like, like you said earlier, it's like no time has passed. You know what I mean? We can just pick up and that connection's still there. And that's a really awesome place to be with other people. Yeah. So thank you, for ladies. Sure.